Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Mi gente, you know each week I drink a different wine and give you my honest opinion of what I think and try and give you more backstory on them. So when I got the wines from Cesoles Wine Company, I was really excited to try them because the owner of the label is a first-generation Mexican-American and he has created these blends based on people in his life who he loves. So from the rosé for those with a sweet palate to the depth of the Chianti-like red blend, Cesoles wines are all reasonably priced. They're all under $20 with the exception of one of the red wines. And they are all beautiful on the tongue. So not only will you not have to spend a lot, you're going to get a great quality of wine. So although the rosé is a bit sweet for me, the white blend I absolutely love and is perfect for a hot summer day. So head over to their website, which is the number six, soles, S-O-L-E-S dot com. And guess what? They are giving the listeners of the Wine and Cheese Made podcast an extra 30, yes, I said 30% off. So if you go to their website and order at checkout, just enter wine and chisme and you will get your discount. Let me know what you think of them. And thank you, Cesolis Wines, for sponsoring this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yanez. Guys, this week I'm recording this part of the podcast from no other than Napa, California. So obviously my guest had to match the energy, and this week my guest is Chris Rivera. Chris identifies as a Chicano and Vato winemaker who just launched his own wine label called Say Soles Wine. Chris strives to make his wine accessible, particularly to the Latinx community, but I'm going to let him tell his story. So grab your glass of wine because I know you know I have mine and join us for the cheese <laughs> Chris, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you doing? I am so well. I'm really excited to have you on today because we did an Instagram live already, but this really gets more into it, right? You are the owner of Cesoles Wine. So I am super excited because we, I think, I don't even actually know, you found me and you had sent me a DM um, because you have a brand new wine label. So I think, did you just find me by a hashtag? Is that how you found me? Yeah, I don't know if I remember specifically, but um, as I search these hashtags that have to do with uh, the Latin, uh, Latino experience, Latinx, wine, all that, uh, led me to, to your, your Instagram page. Yeah, so when you're like, hey, I have this wine label, I'll send you some. I'm like, yes, yes, send it immediately, please. Yeah, well, it makes sense when you're uh, launching these labels uh, to get the word out. I can't just hope that people are going to stumble upon 
been really, honestly, I've been very pleasantly surprised by this. And you literally just launched this year. So we'll get into all of that. But sure. before we get into all of the chisme, we always uh, get to the wine first. So I have tried three of the four wines you have sent me. This one I was waiting for you to, for our interview. So I have... Right. I have your quote unquote expensive bottle. This is your 30, I think 35, <laughs> right? 35 for this bottle. My reserva, yeah. This yeah. is the one that uh, has that profile for sure. Yes. So it's your red blend. Your, like you said, your grande reserva. Tell me a little bit about this wine before I take a taste. Uh, so the reserva is uh, a little more of a structured reserve. Uh, in California, if you're used to California wines, uh, reserve might mean to do big, robust tannins, really kind of uh, big flavors that might. Some people might find it overpowering. What I wanted to do is introduce a, a reserve that has that structure and, and nuance and a, a lot to do, um, really kind of a complex wine, but it doesn't have to be a lot of oak. It doesn't have to be high alcohol, and it doesn't have to be big tannin. Uh, so this is my 2017 res, uh, Reserva. It's Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, and Malbec. Uh, so four of the five main Bordeaux varieties that you'll no- normally find in uh, the Bordeaux region of France and Flanders. Yes, this is definitely like a a heavier wine. So I could see like this is a good dinner wine. This is not a good afternoon sure. wine. <laughs> yeah, it depends on your profile. It, it's funny. Uh, most people actually kind of felt the opposite way that uh, really what we what, what we made was more of a drinkable. Because I'm saying, uh, do you have any much of a drying aspect when you drink it? Is it really dry? Is it puckering your mouth, or is it more a little bit kind of a uh, Hey, I can see why this one's a reserve, right? And uh, yeah, it's, uh, no, it's really good. I like it. But I would yeah. just like, for example, this evening I have a roast in my crock pot, so I would have like a nice glove. I would have this glass of wine like that. Oh man, yeah, I'm hoping that people find it. That's something like I, I can see what meal I have this with. I'll have fun with some friends. That's that's exactly what it's for. So I'm glad you already have a plan for it. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I already have a plan for it. Um, I'm super, like I said, I'm super excited because I have already heard really good things about your wine in regards to when we did the Instagram live and people saying that they wanted to try it. You're a first generation Mexican American. So there is just kind of a lot to explore here when it comes to wine and being a first gen Mexican American. But before we kind of dive into all that, what were the things that brought your parents to immigrate to Northern, because you were you were brought up in Northern California, right? Or in LA, I can't Yeah, that's right. No, I was brought up in, in a, a town called Modesto, California. So agricultural kind of heartland up here in Northern California. So what made your parents, at what point did your parents immigrate and what made them decide to go to that area? Uh, my father came, he was relatively young. Um, his family came, so um, they were looking for something um, they had grown up in the mountainous regions of Michoacan and uh, not much prosperity and not much kind of an outlook. So they decided to come here, settle down in Modesto. A lot of people from Michoacan uh, come to these agricultural areas. So I think they knew some people. My father was probably around junior high age uh, or uh, freshman year in high school is what I remember him saying. And my mother was about 18, 17 when she decided to come um, both of them just looking for uh, something better, something to build upon, looking for opportunity. And um, I think it's a pretty common story. Um, and so they decided to take that risk. So yeah, they came over here, um, went through a whole hell of a lot. Um, things that I, I look back and listen to and I, it kind of makes you 
tear up, man. It's crazy the things that they had to endure. Um, and that's just the immigrant story, right? Um, but they've since become naturalized citizens. And, and now it's up to us, fresh generation, to build upon what they gave us. So do you have any brothers and sisters? Or are you an only? I mean, I would find it hard to believe if you're an only child just because. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was raised an only child, actually. Were you um, really? I grew up I grew up all by myself um, all my life until uh, my father and mother did end up splitting up. My father has a um, a 18-year-old son, uh, a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old daughter, and a nine-month-old son now. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but I do have brothers and sisters. I have a brother down in Los Angeles. Uh, he's older than me. But um, growing up between my father and my mother, I'm the only child. Oh, my gosh. Look at here. I am yeah. saying, oh, I'd find it hard to believe. And you're like, well. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, that's the thing. That's always a, that's always a thought. People are like, well, uh, we tend to have uh, more kids in the family. And mine's just a little different. Sure. Yeah. So what being an, especially not necessarily an only child, but really an only child in your household, what kind of kid were you like growing up? Uh, I, I, I like to say I was pretty normal. Um, <laughs> you have well, to ask my mom, but my mom, <laughs> yeah, but, but you, if you ask my mom, I was the prince uh, and always great. Um, we grew up in, uh, my parents were migrant farm workers uh, early on, but then my father started working in almond orchards. So I think we start off as a, a working class family, but then uh, my father got injured on the job. So for as long as I can remember, um, probably around since I was in third grade, he had uh, major injuries to his back. So we actually survived off of what this great country offers uh, when, it, when you talk about uh, some of those social programs, right? So he got social security, some of those um, disability. And um, we grew up on that because my mom ended up having rheumatoid arthritis early on in my childhood. And it was aggressive. So, you know, people don't know that's an autoimmune disease that kind of it diff- takes different forms. And for some people, it renders you where you can't, uh, you're not that mobile and, and you can't work, right? So we kind of were thrust into uh, a family that didn't have a lot of resources, right? But um, I feel growing up, my parents made all the efforts to make sure that I had the basics covered. So I did. I grew up in a, in a, in a bad side of town, obviously, uh, <laughs> as they say, but I got to know a lot of good people, got involved in sports and other things that kept me busy. So relatively, I just was a kid that was involved in everything. I wasn't great at any one thing. I just happened to be okay at a bunch of stuff. So um, that's the story of my life. Um, Renaissance man. Standard. <laughs> yeah, pretty standard. Uh, I, I didn't have too much trouble. There was a lot of, uh, you know, gangs around the, the neighborhood, but I lived so close that I was just that neighborhood kid that they knew all the time that walked by, right? Um, so I, I got by um, pretty easily without being involved. So the seeing how your parents went from being able to work to not, how do you think that affected your perspective in regards to how, or how you thought you had to contribute to the household or how you contributed to the household from that point on growing up? Yeah, I, I haven't put much thought into that, but the, I think it did shift my worldview. What I saw was that really hardworking people that were proud to, to, um, sacrifice to make sure that we have what we needed and then we got thrust into where we were just trying to survive made me appreciate those programs that were there we weren't the type of people that were always looking to benefit from some of those social services but i've had government fees i've had free meals at school and all those things were available to me and that's why i'm a, a big proponent of those kind of programs for people because the last thing you need is food insecurity when you're a child and you're trying to learn yeah. Um, I don't. I didn't have much pressure as far as being uh, a breadwinner. My dad made sure that uh, although we didn't have much, uh, he's a pay your bills on type type of guy. So I never felt like I had to necessarily come contribute, but I know that it shaped what I would ask for, 
what I think I, I, I could do. If you think about trends and, and how you want to participate with other kids in your school, I tried to strike a balance where I knew, I mean, I couldn't buy anything. So I ended up actually having a, a lot of even killed friends, right? Friends that weren't looking for the nicest shoes and all that. And we luckily I found a support group where it didn't matter. So I didn't feel pressured and I didn't put that pressure on my family. Is is, is my thought, you know, is how I imagine it. No, I think that's good because a lot of times, especially I think that pressure doesn't, it comes from us, especially at that age from our peer group, right? Of trying to yeah. catch up or trying to be like everybody else. As adults, we realize that that's not what we need or oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes we realize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but as kids, you want to fit in and you want to feel like you don't want to feel like the one who's left out. So I could understand the people that you're seeking out, you want to make you wanted to make sure the people that you were seeking out and that you were friends with weren't looking for the superficial, right? Exactly. I actually, I actually, funny enough, I had um, some pretty wealthy friends in high school, but they were so down to earth, you would never know it. The, the wealthiest guy probably drove the raggediest car because they learned early on that those things didn't matter. And me coming from the neighborhood, um, you, you almost feel like you're always trying to prove that you're better than you are you know people think you're ghetto trash and all this and now that you're an adult you look back and you regret ever feeling that way but as your kid man it's excusable to just kind of feel insecure about those kind of things but luckily um i had friends that they didn't care and i i figured it out pretty soon that none of that really mattered and then having things outlets like sports and everything i'm sure helped keep you busy in regards to getting out staying out of trouble yeah and they're equalizers you know um i was in a in a high school in Modesto that is technically on the best side of town, but the way they draw those districts, I had people from all over the neighborhood coming in. I, I learned from, from that experience. We had people from the wealthiest neighborhoods. Uh, we had people that were there for, uh, they excel at academics for sports and all that. So um, it was a, it was a beautiful kind of environment to, to learn in and grow up in. And I benefited from greatly for sure. Now, when you were in high school, did you have a lot of support in regards to, teachers in regards to school to be able and then were you encouraged to go to college and what type of environment were you when you were in high school I tend to have pretty good rapport with certain teachers because I was so involved in a bunch of stuff it wasn't every teacher but um I was definitely never like a troublemaker I was the one kid that was always just kind of there to have a good time and laugh and um, maybe also a little bit of a class clown, uh, causing a little bit of a emotion that does but, not surprise uh, yeah. <laughs> no not at all not at all right but um, did I have people specifically pushing? I don't know. I think I fell in the cracks where there were people that were like, oh, okay, you guys got to do better. But um, there was also times where people assumed like, well, you kind of know what you're going to do. So um, no, I didn't have anyone specifically always like driving behind me. Like, what are you going to do in college? What are your plans? I was in a specific kind of track in school where everyone was supposed to go to college from that track, right? That was a given. So I remember thinking that once I started applying to schools, that's where I finally felt like, oh man, I, I wasn't ready for this. And I didn't know what it to choose a school and, and know what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. Like, I have no idea. Uh, I had a very narrow worldview. And luckily, life experience has taught me a lot since then. But um, if I, I like to think that those resources were available. So hopefully, if you're uh, kind of a go-getter, you'll go find them. I just didn't at that time. What were your parents' expectations of you when you were going through all of that? Did they have those? Did they Were they always like, you need to go to college, you need to do this, you need to do that? Or... Did you feel like that just always felt, fell on you to be self-sufficient in regards to that? Yeah, I think um, they're, they're kind of a – I tended to always get decent grades, right? I wasn't really – like I said, like I'm not trying to paint a picture, but I wasn't really a troublemaker. So 
for the most part, they were pretty hands off. They're like, look, man, you figure your way out. You figure what you want to do with your life. I think overall, they just wanted me to be happy. Then my mom wanted me to, me to be the first Mexican president of the United States, probably. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what, what they kind of was offered was like, well, you seem to kind of know what you're going to do, maybe. So you take the reins and figure out your life, right? And that, that, that was okay until later on when I started figuring out I don't know what I want to do with my life. But um, they were very much uh, the type to to say that you always just got to do better and, and, and try your best um, and be a good person. And, but they didn't define it for me and uh, gave me a lot of, a lot of leeway. So what was your, once you decided you wanted to go to college, what was that? Like, where did you end up going? And what did you think when you started studying? Where did you think your life or did you have an idea of where your life was going to take you? Uh, no, I only went to the university I went to because my friends that were going to go there they were going to be pharmacists. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds cool. Um, what university did you end up going to? Uh, university of Pacific in Stockton. And so it wasn't too far, but um, it was a great experience. I, I the, the most important people, friendships I have in my life right now, uh, a lot of them come from that time, you know? Um, so no, I didn't have a specific, I went there and then I just kind of did an exploratory thing. College wasn't for me. So I left pretty soon after that. Um, I remember thinking like, Oh, you know, Chris, you're, you're a, you're a go-getter and, and you're a team player. And you're going to be able to go out there. And I think in my mind, if I had like a middle management type of track in mind, um, I wasn't going to create any waves. I wasn't going to change any lives, but I was just going to be uh, that American kind of dream where, where you, you get a home, you have some children and uh, you figure it out. And now that I look back, um, I, I, I started just changing my mentality. I, that wasn't for me. Um, so I got into physical therapy. I really enjoyed it. I love the experience of working with people, the rapport taking someone that is feeling horrible and hopefully working to the point where they felt better and they were happy. But then I found wine and that's kind of the way it went. Um, I fell into wine. We never knew about wine growing up because we're first generation and that's just common that we don't know about wine. Yeah. Let's get into that cheese man, but how you found, because how do you just fall into wine? I mean, I would love yeah. to go into a vat of wine and swim in that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but how did you, because you're right, like college is not for everybody. I truly believe that there's so many opportunities and it's for some people and for some industries and not for some people, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I appreciate when people take the opportunity to, to go and then realize if you realize it's not for you, I don't think you, anybody should be looked down upon, even our quote unquote society likes to likes to do that. I didn't even get my degree till I was 37. So- yeah everybody has their own journey and obviously your journey has led you to wine. So how did you even fall into that? Well, I was working in therapy and to advance and to get to a level where you're functioning at a high level, you have to get your doctorate. And so the thought was, well, like I wasted away my opportunity in my early twenties, let's get back on it. And then I was, I figured I need to pay for that. So the highest entry level pay anywhere in that my area was working for Gallo and, uh, and the central Valley. So I got an entry-level position where I was dragging hoses, doing different Gallo things. Gallo Wines? Yeah, Gallo Wines. So uh, based out of Modesto, um, they have several facilities. That's where I started about seven years ago. I spent a year and a half, maybe almost two years there, um, working my way up through the whole middle management thing. So um, but that's how I fell into wine. I just took a job. Yeah. So how, where did you start? Like, how? what was the steps within that? Um, I started, like I said, entry-level. So what that means in that facility was, you get trained on how to transfer wine to different tanks. You get trained on how to add certain chemicals, although you don't know why you really do it or, or to what extent. 
if you're curious, you can start finding those things out, which is kind of how it happened for me. But you could also make a career kind of there, never knowing why you're doing these certain things, but just getting it done because it's, it's compartmentalized. It's such a big facility that you don't know the overall process it takes to get from the vineyard to the bottle. Uh, you might know one part of it. So that's where I started and then um, started advancing towards like management. You know, you start, you work hard and, and you're not there just to make trouble. Then uh, usually people give you a chance. And I, but I started figuring that this is not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be just another layer in management. Um, and I wanted to get into wine and I didn't plan on it. It just grew in me. And, and I decided to uh, take my, you know, uh, my work ethic over to Lodi, applied for a winery here. And I got what they called seller master. So basically oh, you're a supervisor still, a seller master. A seller master? Seller master. Oh, you know, seller. a seller, like a wine seller. Yeah. Seller, yeah. So a seller master um, is just basically another supervisor. So, but the thought was that in a smaller winery, I can see the whole entire process. And once I was doing that, I let them know, hey, this is my plan. So if I do well, hopefully you'll give me a little more responsibility, a little more opportunity. And they were with it, especially with my mentor here. Uh, his name's Joseph Smith. And so I started learning and every time they gave me a little more responsibility to learn, I took it and, and went with it and eventually signed up for Davis and did the program there uh, to get the schooling that comes with winemaking. And that was kind of my process coming up. So how, when I just, I think, I don't remember if I, I think it was from you or maybe it was from somebody else that I found out that there was schooling in regards to winemaking. How many years do you have to take? Do you end up with a certificate? Do you end up with a um, a degree? Like, what exactly is that? Yeah, there's a couple of different uh, traditional tracks. I came through a very non-traditional route as you're as you're listening, right? Like, people, um, I you love, don't you, I you love don't... non-traditional stuff. <laughs> I came through very non-traditionally. Yeah, so normally people don't recommend getting the physical therapy if you want to be a winemaker, right? So um, <laughs> that's just kind of <laughs> how it happened, but. Traditionally, people go to like a four-year university and you'll take either a, a viticulture degree or a knowledge degree or maybe a mixture of both and you'll graduate and have at least uh, some clout to say, can I get an opportunity to become working in a lab? Uh, if you're lucky, you might become into a winemaking uh, role, but that's not normally how it happens. As you can imagine, there's a lot of people that want to be winemakers. Uh, there's no shortage. So it's, it's hard to just say, I graduated and now I'm a winemaker. My, tr- my, my route was learning on the job. Uh, my first day on the job was bottling. I had to run a whole bottling crew. I had never run a bottling crew. And they're like, figure it out. We're going to need these cases by the end of the week. So good luck. And um, oh it worked out. But man, it was one way to learn. It was crazy. But my whole winemaking career has been like that. Oh, yeah. But you either excel or you don't. In those, in those, um, and if you know what you do, you can steer it. I had uh, some confidence that I'm like, I got this. Luckily, it worked out. But what I did was once I was already working and learning a lot, I knew that you still have to have that piece of paper, that legitimacy that comes with a, a school like either CSU Fresno that, that does these programs, uh, UC Davis, and a couple other programs. But those are the big ones. Uh, San Luis Obispo, I believe, does. So I did a online version. It was a two-year process. So what they did is take their core curriculum and boil it down to the really most important parts. And it's for people that are already in the industry. They know that you already have a background and have access to a lot of things. So it doesn't have to be theory and it doesn't have to be abstract thought. It's just like, hey, you're learning this today. You can put it into practice and go out and, and do it. And um, that's what happened for me. I came out with a winemaker certificate, uh, something like that from, from Davis. Um, and that's an interesting program. So that's another avenue people can explore for sure. That is so crazy. I Because you don't think, right? Like, especially 
I think when you're more in Northern California and close to the, there's winemaking down here as well, but I feel yeah. like it's just such part of the culture when you're in that area, when you're in Northern California, when you're in the like, I think Lodi, you said, is really kind of moving up within that, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and then especially Napa, Sonoma area, that's just kind of so much part of the culture. But down here in, San, in like Southern California, it's not necessarily as ingrained, even yeah. though I just learned that L.A. is where winemaking started in California, like that Los Angeles area. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. I like read it. I get really nerdy and dive into all this stuff but so right now you're working at a winery and you're running say soles wine but but what made you what made you decide you wanted to create say soles wine after even working within a winery i think it's a longing to create to be in charge of something to be something of your own right um i've always had a an appreciation for artistic people people that could either uh sing dance uh draw all those things that I created that I thought were like the traditional arts. And I thought, man, I appreciate it, but I don't excel at any of that. So then I found a medium that before I got into it, Oh man, I know it sounds stupid for people to be like, when you make wine, it's art. And I get it. I get it. Uh, People take themselves too seriously. But when you finally get into it and you understand how you can influence a wine on a a daily basis, and it takes you two years to get at the bottle. Is there a little bit of of me in, in this? Yeah. And that's how I view it as an artistic style. Right. So, but that doesn't pay the bills. That's a, that's a soul satisfying situation. <laughs> um, and when I started finally thinking about, uh, am I going to do this? I saw so many brands start and fail. So for the longest time I was like, no, nope, that's not for me. But um, what really kicked it off was knowing that there's a niche for me. And I think people like you and I um, living in this space, when we're talking about wine, it's uncommon. Um, and why is that? Right. Um, it's not because Mexicans don't like, or Latinos don't like, uh, wine is just because we're most of us here are come from a working class background and anywhere in any country that has wine the working class background normally is not going to have access to or uh, have a, a appealing for that kind of commodity and i would go out to taste rooms and i walk in and people look at me kind of like oh are you lost are you delivering something uh, can i help you and i'm just like yeah i'm here to taste like everyone else in the damn room and those are small little things that i try not to like get to me but it did make me think that's happening to me and I'm in the industry and I'm winemaking already. What is that happening to uh, every normal random person just walking in that yeah. looks like this, right? So I saw an opportunity there. I'm like, well, if these brands and this industry as a whole is not going to do that, who can do that? Can you do that, Chris? And I decided that, yeah, I was going to try. And that's what they saw this kind of started from the idea that it's a really inclusive brand. Uh, I'm making traditional wine. I know how to make authentic traditional wine. Um, but I don't want to present it in a pretentious way. You know, it's not exclusive. It's not meant to not be available to a certain person. If you want to try wine and you want to experience that and, and enjoy it with your family and, and a meal, I want that to be uh, something that you can learn about. And, and, and why not introduce a lot of new people to the wine industry? And that's what my, my goal is with Safe Bullet. I love that because it is true. I mean, growing up, I didn't know anything about wine. And okay, so let me tell you what I knew about wine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know I won't be alone here, right? Because my my pa- my dad was more white blue collar. I don't know. He worked in a warehouse and he worked his way up to like management and high management within a warehouse. So sure. he started out like blue collar and ended up in like more white collar. Does that make sense? Yeah. Within but still within warehousing. Yeah. And my mom would like sometimes work, sometimes not. Sometimes work, sometimes not. Yeah. 
But the only thing I knew about wine were like wine coolers because my mom would get wine coolers. Yeah, yeah. Bartles and James, you remember Bartles and James? Oh, I do. Yep, I do. <laughs> and me and my friends would sneak wine coolers. <laughs> oh, man, you were so sophisticated and adultish, you know, like, of course. <laughs> we were so awesome. <laughs> or my mom would get like the boxed wine, like the friends okay. or whatever. But she didn't know about wine. We didn't know about wine. And it's not. Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's one of those things where you have to kind of get introduced to it and then you have to learn. And I think I've gotten this feedback already of so many people saying they appreciate at the beginning where I'm reading the labels and talking about what it is. And I will say what I think, but my palate is different than everybody else's. So everybody's going to have their own idea of what they like and don't like. So the fact that you're saying like you want to create this wine with still very traditional things, but presented in an tr- untraditional way, because there's so many people like us that have never, that didn't grow up with it. Now, you know what my sophistication level was growing up. With- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, it was higher than mine. <laughs> <laughs> what makes what you're doing like, what makes it uh, quote unquote unpretentious in regards to how you're presenting your wine versus other wines? Um, you know, a, a lot of it, I think starts with uh, how I talk about the wine. It's not like, Oh, this blah, 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 really flowery language and using terms that nobody knows uh, this abstract fruit that you're like, Oh, what the hell is that? Right. And especially to uh, a Latino or Mexicano, they're like, Oh, black currant. And you're like, what? What is that? Okay, like, I read yeah. these labels, right? I'll read them at the beginning. Yeah. And I, sometimes I start laughing because I'm like, I have no idea what this means. I'm even still learning about wine. But I have so many people saying that how much they appreciate it because they don't know anything. So, Yeah, it's, it's a skill that I've, I've been trying to always learn. And it's a skill that's hard to learn is to speak at, at people's level. So because the important thing is to get your point across, to get the communication. Now, you could also do that while trying to use your own uh, idea of what the language should be, but is that effective, right? So in the, in the wine, I'm not talking about like, oh, from a uh, historical uh, blah, 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 vineyard, this and that. It's just like, hey, this is why it tastes a certain way, and this is why I chose to do it. And hopefully that way it's a springboarding to an educational thing, right, to know why those components are in there. Um, the labeling itself is a connection I have to my, uh, my parents' roots in Michoacan, has a very Aztec feel to it. Um, Michoacan necessarily wasn't a big part of the Aztec community. We were on the outskirts, but um, that's something that we all as Latinos can relate to, um, that kind of uh, imagery. And I'm an American citizen. I was born here and I have, uh, I was born and raised on American pop culture. And so how do I integrate those things, right? I'm very proud of my Mexican roots. I'm very proud to be an American. I'm very proud of this country. How do we do that, right? Without being comical and putting another calavera that looks like a cartoon and like cocoa on your wine. And that's cool. It's just not my style. Yeah. Uh, but when I mix all that together on the front of my bottle, you're not going to see a big mansion, a Chateau, but Chateau Rivera, right? Like it's not about that. Um, it's about it Is being that accessible. Is that going to be wine, Chateau Rivera? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, no, nah, it'll, it'll never sound like that, but uh, I have ideas for supply guys? level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing like that. But I think when you're really waging that war on, on making it accessible, it's on how you, talk about it directly to people right so if you walk into a tasting room and every question you feel like it's thought of as a dumb question it turns you off right so there are no dumb questions and so when we talk about wine 
you might have a preconception, you might have something you heard, and let's talk about it and why my experience maybe tells me something different or might affirm what you think. Um, and that's how I'm making it approachable as well as approachable price point. We're talking about a, a rosé and a white that's very uh, hand-picked, you know, uh, made in a very traditional way, um, but still um, 16 bucks, right? So it's not going to be 30, 40 bucks for something that might introduce you to the wine. And then I have those other wines that start getting up there depending on how much more work I had to put into it, the oak I had to uh, purchase. And so my hope is that as people get into this brand and find it to be fun and exciting and something they want to talk about and share, they also have some wines they can try and graduate to and enjoy. Yeah, I will say, and anytime I've, I've shown the bottles, your bottles are beautiful. And I, now, and I will say this, as somebody who drinks a lot of wine, and when you have whites and rosés that, need, that need to be chilled, the thing that really irritates me the most is having a paper label and then it starts peeling yeah. away. So the yeah. fact that your bottles are like engraved with your logo on it, and they're even different colors for the white and the rosé. It's a little bit different. Yeah. I've kept those two bottles because they are so beautiful. I'm like, I can fill it up with something. <laughs> Right, I can yeah. put water, some food dye, and a couple of flowers in there, something. Sure. Yeah. Because they're so gorgeous. And anytime I've shown pictures of your bottles, that's like the first thing people notice. And so the fact that those bottles already are the price point that they're at, just even the presentation of it, is they're beautiful. I will say that. They're we have talked about the rose and the wine and, and the white blends. One thing that I've talked about when I've talked about your wine, and I think people, you get the emotional factor, okay, is that you've said you've created these blends also based off of people you love. Right. So tell me a little bit about that in regards to, like, particularly the rosé, because we've had that conversation, but in regards to all the wines, like, how have your personal experiences, like, with your friends and your family affected this? Yeah, definitely. I, that's been a, such an important part because uh, early on when I, I started working at this winery that I work at, um, I, we make great wine. I'm so proud of the wine we make there. Um, but if you haven't tried wine, it might be a lot to you. You know, It might be kind of overpowering. And so it was interesting. I had an uncle that said, hey, we're going to have an anniversary. And I said, of course, I'm going to give you my best bottle, but maybe I'll give you something different. And they're like, nope, I want your best. I said, okay. Gave it to them, came back later. I found the bottle in their fridge and they had barely cracked it open. I was like, yo, man, how'd you like that wine? They're like, oh, oh, mijo, we loved it. Thank you. We enjoyed it. That drop. I'm like, it's in your fridge. And they were embarrassed. They're like, oh, no. And I said, (laughs) please don't be embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, you got caught. I mean, I I caught you. But that's why I asked you if I could give you something different. Um, Because what I really enjoy is that aha moment in people's faces when they taste the wine and it was really what they wanted. And they look at you, they're like, yes, that's what I wanted, right? And that's not going to be for everybody. You can get a 100-point wine, and most of the people in my family or everybody is going to be like, I don't like this, right? So that's what led me to want to create wines that people want to drink. And when I think about the people I love, they like some wines that are really accessible, really approachable, don't have to eat it with food, some sugar in there, depending on the style. So that's why the rosé is semi-sweet. That's why the white isn't sweet, but it also isn't uh, very acidic and and very tart. And those are the specific reasons that I made those because when we think about our community that are barely emerging, getting into wine within California, at least, those are the wines that are going to approach them, uh, that, that are going to make them interested. 
just like beer, just like tequila and anything else, pick your, your poison, whatever you like. The first sip you ever took was probably like, oh, I don't like that. Like, right? Oh, yeah. uh, I, I don't know too many people the first time they tried tequila are like, oh, my God, that's the most approachable thing I've ever had, right? No, the first, but, hey, growing up <laughs> in Tijuana, my first experience with tequila is like shooters. So yeah, never, and I think it was probably in high school, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, you don't have to say that. <laughs> okay. Hey, I'm, I, it doesn't matter now. <laughs> But and then who's gonna afford like good tequila? Now I appreciate dipping yeah. tequila, but I'm like, get that cheap stuff away from me. Yeah, and you you it's an acquired taste, and that's wine's no different. There's a mystery behind it that like you have to have this sophistication, you have to read leather bound books to enjoy wine, and, and it's <laughs> like no, you don't. Uh, no, you can be uh, just like everyone here, a normal person, and appreciate it for different reasons. So what I decided is I was not gonna make wine my way or the highway type style where I'm gonna make it if you don't like it, get the hell out I specifically make wine that I think people are gonna like and, um, I find joy in that I find joy in bringing new people to the table they're like oh I didn't like wine but your, your wine I love it and I'm like okay that's what I wanted and now you get to explore you know I have my brand and I hope you stick with it but there's so many beautiful wines to try and try it with food do that have fun and hopefully you try my brand once in a while and and if I keep doing a good job you'll keep coming back yeah, I wish people could see your face right now as you're talking about it, because <laughs> it's totally lighting up. I love seeing that. Seriously, you're, you're, <laughs> you totally see like the passion that you have for this. What? Oh man! Yeah. Like, so I know all of your wines are blends, right? They're yeah. all blends. What makes for a good blend of wine? Like, what? When? What are you looking for? Because I think. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about this one, which is what a mix of, you can probably say it faster than I can find it on here. When you're doing this. Cap Soft, Cap Franc, Merlot, and Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what makes like those blends go so well together? And for each of the types of wines that you have, what are you looking yeah. for when you're doing those? So I think a good wine in general, people always like, well, what makes a good wine? It's very subjective. So it can be anything from uh, your personal taste to what you see in a book, what people rate it, and they're not going to necessarily coincide, right? So I think a good wine is balanced. That's, that's a very broad term, but, and you can be balanced at different levels with high alcohol, low alcohol, and all of it has to play. You're talking about acid, sugar, uh, anything with oak that has to do with aging. All those things come into play. So when I do my blends, when I'm looking for a specific profile, I'm choosing components to create that profile. So when I wanted a semi-sweet rosé, some of the components that I put in there, I only fermented to a certain amount and left sugar in there so that it is sweet, right? So I created that situation. With the whites, I knew that I wanted something aromatic and expressive, so I chose Albarino and Grenache Blanc specifically, and then fermented those to a point where I think the acid and sugar was in balance. Um, and when you talk about the Reserva, those are traditional Bordeaux blends. And when they say that in the Bordeaux region of France, they have uh, some core grapes, including those that we talk about. And when they would take vineyards, they would say, okay, the Cabernet gives this component, the Merlot gives this component, Malbec and everything. They all have their different rules to play, and they're not equally added at the same amount. Now, you have parts in France that are heavily Cabernet, some that are heavily Merlot, but they're mixing those. And why are they mixing those? To create a balanced wine. So my... Reserva, my Bordeaux blend is not the same as what you're going to get in France because we're in a totally different region, different soil, different uh, uh, temperatures and everything. But once again, the core belief is to make a balanced wine. And uh, that's what I did with those red wines to make it so that you won't drink it and think like, oh, that's a little overpowering or I have to put that away for a long time. I want you to enjoy it now. And 
but know that you got your, your money's worth out of it as well. Yeah. So speaking of, this might sound like a silly question. Actually, it won't because you said there are no silly questions. There are none. <laughs> when you're talking right. about the, the types of wine, is it when you're saying um, a Merlot or a Cat, are those the names of the grapes? Mm-hmm. Or Yeah. Okay. Because I wasn't, I mean, I figured, but I know that, again, I've never taken a wine. I've never even really taken a wine class. I've gone to tastings, but these are not yeah. necessarily things that people even ask for you here, because I feel like when sure. you go to a tasting room, they already assume you know something, but I feel like most people don't know anything and are too afraid to say it. Yeah, I think that's that's the case. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those are specific names of the grapes. So um, they, they have a, a specific species of, of like vines that within that species you have subgroups and um, something like a Cabernet Sauvignon has its uh, origins from uh, a grape called Cabernet, uh, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc which is a white grape so what you have is at some point either on purpose or sometimes on accident um, or just by natural selection uh, you have cross-pollination that that creates these different grapes and they have different attributes now we have Syrah is one type of grape right and then there's something called Petite Syrah why is it called that? Well, because it's physically smaller, and because it's smaller, the ratio of liquid to all the color and tannin in the skins makes it so that it's a more concentrated wine. And so although they're in the same species, they're actually different grapes, and that's why uh, they all have their individual roles to play, and that's why they're called different things. So, yeah, when we talk about Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, those are all completely different grapes. And they can taste different based on the regions, right? Oh, you yeah. can use the exact same grape, but if they're yeah. in different regions, they could taste yet totally different. Yeah, I could take a clipping from a vineyard in another country and plant it here and grow something from it, and it's going to be completely different. Um, and it can be completely different just because we're talking about, like, natural reasons, right? When we're talking about sun, uh, rain, water table, all those things in soil, or because I chose to harvest it at a certain time. Or once I harvested it, different things I did to it in the winery. Did I put it in oak? Did I leave it in the tank? Did I expose it to oxygen? Did I not? All those things. So people might say, I like Merlots. But I always laugh because it's like, well, what, what does that mean? It could be a, a bunch of different things. You might get a, a $7 Merlot that's very sweet and that doesn't have a lot of structure, but you like it, and that's great. Drink that. But then in Merlot and Napa and Sonoma, is going to be a whole different wine. Yeah. And you, you wouldn't be able to pinpoint it. That doesn't taste like a Merlot to me. And it's very subjective that way. So I was talking to somebody who was telling me that for every three, like in the retail side of, of things, for every $3 you spend, the quality of wine goes up like significantly when you're looking <laughs> at retail. And so I was prior to, like, I'm trying to really support like black and brown vintners right now. Yeah. Super important. And many black and brown vintners are not necessarily in retail spaces. There are a right. few, but a lot of them are, are not in retail spaces. So um, you might have to pay a little bit more. But do you find just even if you're going into retail, I try and look at the, I try and read the labels in regards to like whatever I can find as far as tasting notes and stuff. Because I know I found that I don't, I'm not a big grapefruit. I don't like grapefruit. I don't like chocolate. I don't like caramel. So if I see anything similar to that, I, to me, I instantly cross that off my list because I find as soon as I read it, that's the first thing I taste, right? Sure. Like that's like, that's, I feel like that's exactly where, goes, <laughs> oh, this is great. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about retail versus 
like yourself, who's an independent winemaker, what would you say people should look for when they're going into retail versus if, you've, if you're not very experienced in wine, but you want to support black and brown vintners, what are the things you should look for when you're going retail and when you're going independent? Man, that's an interesting question. Um, but we're here talking about the cheese man, right? So let's get into the masa. That's um, right. Hey, I'm so glad <laughs> because these are questions. Yeah. Nope. I, I, I don't I wouldn't know either. Give me the cheese maker. I, I think we have practices. Like I've made my bottles. I put so much time into them because we as people in a retail setting always gravitate towards beautiful bottles, things that speak to us. And so that has to happen. Now, does that mean that it's going to make it a better wine. No, I could put a really poor wine in that beautiful bottle and people might buy it. And the fact that they like the bottle might influence why they even bought it and uh, create this illusion that the wine's even better than it is. Right. So those are tr real things that happen. So I, I discourage people from buying um, by price specifically. Now, if you know that you want to buy a $20 bottle or less, then those are things to kind of keep in mind. But just because one bottle's 15 and one's 19 doesn't mean that the 19 specifically is going to be better. What I, I like to tell people is um, if, if you're going to look for scores, maybe know where those scores are coming from. So say you have a, a, a wine writer or a wine critic and you know his specific style because they have styles that they prefer. Now, you might either really like their style or really hate it. But either way, if you know, man, this guy rated this wine or this, this woman rated this wine this way, you know whether you're going to like it or hate it, right? That's one way in retail. Uh, another way is to kind of experience uh, when you talk about grape varieties, right? You might know that a Cabernet Sauvignon, as you develop that palate and know that, oh, calves maybe tend to be a little more structured, a little bigger on tannin, I probably stay away from those. And then you start just paying attention to grapes. It's tough to make it uh, specific to Latino and Black-owned, because like I said, like you said, we're not in those retail spaces traditionally. Right. Um, and it's hard, because if you're in those retail spaces all over the place, you're viewed as okay, you're a bulk producer, you're doing a lot, so it must not be of decent quality maybe, or, and you, or if you make a small amount, you're not available to everybody, right? So I would encourage people to look online because the wine industry is so archaic, man. We, we know we have our tasting rooms and you better come to my region if you want to taste my wine. Okay, I'll sell them some stores, um, but that's about it, right? But say Solis is, is going to live and die online. I'm specifically making this available. Let's have that conversation where I can teach you about my wine and I'll ship it to you, right? And that's in line with how we are emerging in society, right? We, uh, we've been Amazonified where we want everything delivered to my door. And, and so I'm, yeah, especially right now. And now it's, it's just a health reason even to do it. So uh, I'm playing in that space. I think a lot of other forward thinking uh, Latino and black owned wineries are trying to do that. So maybe I would encourage people to jump into those spaces because in retail, all we have is a huge amount of, of research that will get you to buy wine, but not necessarily educate you on wine. Right. right? So um, I, I encourage people to jump on Instagram because that's where a lot of us are expressing ourselves and you can get information. There's <laughs> other apps like wine searcher or Vivino. Those are interesting things to get into to see people's actual, like these are real people that just have uh, a fascination or a hobby obsession with wine and listen to them. What did they say? And based on what they say, and if it's consistent with other people, do I like that or do I hate it, right? It does take a little bit of work because um, a lot of trickery out there. There's a lot of research on how to get you to buy a bottle and, and none of it on how to actually educate you and, and empower you to make your own wine-making decisions or wine-drinking yeah. decisions. I mean, I'm working right now 
to really, if I, I, I would love it if all the wines I featured on the podcast were black and brown owned wines. Like, yeah, I, I honestly, that's my goal is to really work towards that to places that aren't necessarily available in retail to be able yeah. to work with all of these different vintners because even though wine isn't the only thing we talk about, it's usually just kind of the upfront thing, but having things like this where we had our Instagram live or to do right. you know virtual wine tastings to, pr- to bring these things out, I think is super, super important. And I think right now more than ever, people want to be able to support small businesses, black and brown businesses. So I think it's really, really important. I saw on your Instagram that you're yeah. starting to work on the next batch. Cause this is your first, well, before we get to that, this is the first year you literally just launched in January, which has been like of all years, right? How has, yeah. how has everything been? Cause I know you just referenced to the fact that everything you're doing is online. So, which I think is, is already to that benefit of what's happening right now, but what are you seeing or how would you have done things differently pre pre and post COVID? And how are you feeling like it's affecting your wine label? Yeah. Well, I I started the, the legal uh, aspect of my business last year, January. I had nothing out. I didn't release till four months ago. Oh, four months ago. Yeah. So Nobody's been able to touch the wine until like only about four months ago. And that's when COVID was already happening. Um, I feel so what, honored because these are good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you like them. Thank you so I much. Did. And I have been getting a huge positive reception because I think about a part of it is I've been working in this space and I knew I wanted to make wine people wanted to drink and not necessarily just make wine and, and make sure that I can convince people to drink it. So it's been hugely positive. People, um, luckily, a lot of people just initially supported, even if they didn't drink wine. They're like, hey, I like you, though. I'm going to buy four bottles. And then they're like, I happen to like this wine, actually. And I have a couple people in my family that I think would like that. So let me get a couple bottles for them. So it's been hugely positive. What I planned for the year has already gone in about four months. I think by six months, I would have sold out everything I planned for the year. But once again, we're talking about very small batches. So what I would have done differently, I think when you're always chasing to try to make the perfect launch you can also is is there a part of you that's just kind of scared and as long as you're not actually out there you can't be rejected is that part of it and i never actively thought about that but when i reflect on it i had the wine in january but i was like i have to have a perfect website i have to have this and that and it just became like hey you know what dummy release the wine you i believe in the wine that's the one thing that i never wavered on so i was like let people try it and trust that they know what they like and and if you're wrong then go back to the drawing board, but you're not going to know until you actually launch, right? So COVID happened and I saw, man, all these restaurants are closing. I have nowhere to do this. So I just put it out on my Facebook. I said, hey, friends, this is what I'm doing. And if you want to support and try wine, this is what I'm doing. And hopefully uh, you want to try it. And people did. And they told their friends. And their friends told their friends. And then I started jumping on Instagram. I'm trying to create an experience for people because I can't see them face-to-face. I want them to see what I'm doing. Uh, I I want it to be authentic. And people responded to that, like you. Thank you so much, Jessica, for uh, reaching out and saying, yeah, yeah, man, I would love to talk about your wine. I have a platform. I'm going to share that with you. As a fellow Latino, I'm going to empower you to be successful. And uh, a couple of people have done that for me. Uh, Latinx Wine is another one where they've decided that, hey, I have an interest in, in just telling your story at least. And that doesn't mean that people have to like my wine, but I would love for them to try it. So if anything, if I would change, I would just get over it and launch sooner and create that online presence sooner because it pays off to have had that in the COVID world we live in today. 
Oh, for sure. You're working on your next release, right? I saw yeah. on, on Instagram. What are you working on for the next batch of wines? How are they going to di- differentiate? Are you going to be doing different things? Kind of give us, give us a sneak sure. preview, if you will. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the background. Um, so what, what specifically is what I hope to say Solis will be is that I have those four core wines that you have. After this next vintage, I'm hoping that it's very consistent. So what I'm not trying to do is every year hope that I, the wine happened to turn out a way that you're going to like it, right? If you see Stay Solis and you want to buy it and you love the white blend, I want every time you pick it up and buy it and taste it, you're like, that's what I wanted. And when you leave it up to Mother Nature and everything, that's not always going to be the case. Right. So that's where my, my experience and my, my skills come into play to make that happen. Regardless of what happens that year, I need you to understand that the white blend is going to be similar. The rosé is going to be similar. And those two red blends, once I track down what I want, they're going to be similar. Where I get to experiment and have fun is once I do that and people join a wine club that I hope to launch a little later this year, twice a year, they might get some of their old favorites. And then I'm going to include some new fun stuff that I'm trying. And with that comes a little bit of a educational material that says, hey, this is why I did this. Uh-huh. And this is why it's different from something you might have tried. Uh, let's say I go to Valle de Guadalupe in Mexico. And they have a Nebbiolo that they made. And I'm like, well, let me make a Nebbiolo and let's talk about why they're different and why they're not different or whatever. That's where I get to have fun. Uh, so that's the mixture I'm trying to create um, in the future for sure. Well, one, if you ever need a taste tester, you can always send me a bottle. I have no problem with that. Man, hey, I, I have, luckily, so many people are so sacrificial that they're always <laughs> offering to be taste testers, man. I've never come across a more generous group of people than when I'm making wine and uh, I need some tasting. It's amazing. (laughs) And two, if you ever want to go to Valle, I have like, obviously I'm in San Diego and I always have people like, I I know people who do the the tasting tours and stuff down there. So once everything is okay, we're on the, you know, to go. I have a lot of people who are ready to go down to Valle and I've never even been to Valle and I'm so so sad that it didn't go before all of this. I encourage people to make that trip. I've been there several times and uh, beautiful wine being made down there. And then the, the culinary experience, there's a gastronomical kind of revolution happening in Tijuana, Ensenada, by the Guadalupe. Oh my gosh. So I'm, not, yeah. I'm not talking about good Mexican food. I'm talking about good artisanal worldly food oh my at gosh. your fingertips. It yeah. is. There's some amazing places. Yeah, things are popping just really even all over Mexico in regards to the food experience that you can have there. So if people don't know Valle de Guadalupe, there are three main wine regions in Mexico and they're all in Baja California that most, not all, but most of the wine, if you're getting from Mexico, they're going to be from those particular regions. I know we had talked before, but kind of go a little bit more into with what you're doing now and launching your own label and working for a winery how has that come together? How support? I mean, I would imagine who you're working with. You said he's your mentor. They're be, they've been really supportive in regards to this launch and everything. But tell me a little bit more in regards to how you're because you're just a one. You know, you're doing this on your own. How are you working with your winery or other wineries or however to really get this wine made? Sure, sure. I, I think the biggest thing that I like advice I can give and I try to give to the youngest people in my family is that you never know how far just being a good person is going to take you. Right. So I've been in this industry and let's say if 
my whole time here, I've been kind of rude to the drivers that show up or salesmen that want to come sell me some oak or another winery that's a lot smaller than mine. And I think I'm, we're bigger and I'm just going to be rude to them. You're never going to get people that want, that like you and want to help you out. Right. So I started all this and I just like to get along with people for the most part. I have a strong opinion, but for the most part, like I'm not a conflict driven person. So because I was just good to a lot of people that when I eventually, the idea came to me way later on to start a winery, maybe one of the bottling guys that I had worked with and we had good rapport when he's like, Hey, I heard you want to do your own thing. If you want some help, like I'll, uh, I'll give you a really good price on bottling. Um, I can even help you out. And those are the kind of things that came um, to make say solace happen. I live heavily. I, I tell people all the time, closed mouths don't get fed. So if you don't ask for help, you're never going to get help. And Let me um, make by the generosity of a lot. Because that is so true. Yeah, yeah. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So because I was good, decent to a lot of people, like we all should be, you shouldn't be good to people just because you're going to get something in return. But you'd be surprised how many times that actually is a beneficial way to live your life. So when I decided to do my thing, I, I really fashioned my brand not to conflict with the winery I work with. So we're not making the same types of wines. We're not making them the same style. When our branding's completely different, our market, the, the, our customer, target customer is completely different. And when I explained to that and with the history of just being straight up with them, they're like, we can work with that. I get it. Right. Cause not any, um, wine winery is going to be okay with it. It's not as common, but luckily people believed in me enough. They're like, well, shit, you know, Chris, you're going to do it anyway. Once you decide you're going to do it, you're going to do it anyway. So why not? We all kind of just grow together. Right. Cause the thing is, I just like is when people view each other as, competition so much mm. like as latinos let's say latino uh latinx winemakers in in all of california now there might be a tendency for some of them to be like oh well you're the other mexican winemaker like we have conflict Altogether, we don't present represent not even 0.5 percent of the wine being made the wine companies out there i don't view them as as competition i view them as teammates hey we're gonna go out there and um we're gonna present what we do and we all do it in different ways and so that's the lifestyle I've led. And I think it's led to people being open to like helping me out. Right. So um, I have access to equipment, to facilities, to picking crews. I have access to a lot of stuff just because I've been in this industry and been okay with a lot of people. And that's what I leveraged to make space solace happen. Um, I started with very small resources. It's very much a, a, a rags so far story. Uh, hopefully it gets to uh, doesn't, have to be, doesn't have to be riches, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but some financial independence. And not just for me, but for some other people in my family, right? So that's kind of what's come to make Stay Solace participate and, and coexist with a lot of other people where some people might find conflict. We did not. You're right. When people, when you're good to people, people want to be good to you. And you shouldn't yeah. be good to people expecting something. But I also sure. think that people understand, like, people can sense if you're sincere or not. At least I believe. And if people feel like you're insincere and you're, you can pick up somebody who's being quote unquote fake pretty quickly, I think. And if that's the vibe you're giving off, then of course people aren't going to help you. How long from picking the grape to harvesting to creating the wine, like how long does that process normally take? It depends on the style and grapes and what you want to do. But let's say for my white and rosé, for 2020, I'm going to be harvesting probably early August which is coming up soon and then hopefully have it in bottle by November and ready for people to drink around December, January, around there. So with those whites and the style I'm creating, because it's only going to live in steel tanks and no Oak, there's no aging qualities that I want on these wines. They're 
a quicker turnaround. Now, when we're talking about that acerva, uh, we pick these grapes, let's say 2020, I pick them. They're going to go through the different things that we do. Um, and then they go into barrels for aging and they go anywhere aging from 16 to 24 months, depending on how things are going. There's things that we can do to make that quicker or longer, depending on your style and what you want to do. But that means that what I pick this year in a couple months won't be in the market till 2022, maybe 2023. Uh, and those won't be available. So speaking of, I know you said there's things that you can do to make that process quicker. Does that water down the quality or does that bring down the quality of the wine if wineries do that? Uh, it depends on what you think of as quality, right? So once again, we're talking about subject subjective things. What somebody views as uh, not quality, other people might not even pick up on or not even care about. So um, not necessarily. So what I'm talking about are things like if I use um, very mild and a subtle French oak, it's going to take a lot longer for that to really kind of integrate in and still be expressive. And that'll take months and months and months. Now, if I want to create a style that has big oak and big tannin, I can use American oak. And that's the profile you get um, from oak. And depending on toasting level can change what you do. So those are the kind of tools that I'm talking about. People can either quicken the pace or prolong it depending on what kind of choices they make. Are there other choices that people make um, that would water down the quality? Probably, but that's not the space we work in, right? I'm not making that type of wine where it's a quick in, quick out, and I'm going to add water here so I can get more gallons and all that uh, masa that people do. This is very much, like I said, a very traditionally made wine. I am using whatever I need to to make a good wine, right. um, but those are the things I'm talking about. Gotcha. We talk, There's this whole, I feel like there's this whole subset of things popping up in regards to sulfate-free and organic wine. But I feel like a lot of people don't really know what the difference is and what makes that, does that change the wine, all of those things. Can you tell me a little bit about what the difference between a sulfate wine free, a sulfate free wine would be versus an organic wine versus regular traditional wine? Yeah, so traditional wine, for the most part, um, you have very common techniques. And the one that people focus on is that uh, sulfur is added, and it's a way to inhibit any kind of bacterial growth, spoilage, all those kind of things. And it's been used for a very long time. You can look back into the early times of winemaking, and they at least had sulfur sticks they would burn in the cellars. Wine is such a complex liquid that we're still learning a lot about it. It's not as simple as just saying it's grape, water, and purple. You know, like it's actually <laughs> a very, very, very complex well, liquid. Like that a has to... recipe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a complex that has to do with acid, pH, uh, sugar, alcohol, and all those other intangibles that we talk about when we talk about like tannins and all that. So those are the kind of things we talk about when uh, traditional wine comes up, but sulfites are the magical, scary word. And yeah, there's a lot to learn about them. But for the most part, even organic wine has naturally occurring sulfites. In it. uh, it's a natural process of fermentation and dyeing yeast cells that creates this sulfur in the wine. Um, so every wine, regardless of any wine, has some natural uh, sulfites in them already. And so organic wines are like, well, you can be at a certain level and below and still be organic wine. And then other ones, um, so I don't think there's a, a sulfite-free wine. What you have is wines that don't add sulfite. So some people might have some kind of allergic reaction to it. Uh, there's a lot of allergens in wines that we just in general don't know about. And sulfites are always the culprit. That's the thing. Like, oh, sulfites give me headaches. Uh, nah, maybe it was that 16% bottle of wine you slammed. Like, that might have <laughs> given you a headache, right? Like, <laughs> and I run across that all the time because 
I think if you read about it, um, there's very few people technically that are allergic to sulfites, but everyone wants to say that's what it is. I mean, there's genetic reasons why certain people might turn red when they drink wines. There's allergens that have nothing to do with sulfites. There's some that do. And so it's a catch-all term. Um, it's important to always keep in mind, but overall, I think it's a, it's a bigger hype than what people talk about. But I think if you truly don't want to have sulfites, organic is the way to go. Um, low sulfite wine is the way to go. If that's important to you. And, and luckily, um, a lot more people are catching on to that and doing that. I personally am not. I'm not as worried about it. I do want to make wine that's conscious of the land. So I want to make wine that comes from grapes that are responsibly farmed. And those are the kind of things I want to do and, and be conscientious of my package and not have waste, use recycled materials. Uh, but sulfites are the some, something that I think I'm going to be uh, using at very safe levels that we've all used for a long time. Uh, I think I'm going to continue to do that. And so maybe, you know, I'm going to keep reading. And, and if what I read tells me differently, then I'll change it for sure. But I think it's more of marketing and, and the new fad to really say that, yeah. oh, only sulfite wines are this or that, you know, um, especially when you look into and read about it. So you touched on responsible uh, responsible farming for your grapes and using um, recycled material. What do you mean by responsible farming to get the grapes? So uh, a lot of it has to do with the water management instead of like old vineyards that used to be flood irrigated where they used to open it and as much water as you need to get into there. And it's a lot of waste, a lot of evaporates or sticks in the soil that doesn't be used by the vines. Uh, those are things that Lorai especially has been um, getting away from. So they have drip irrigation uh, they restrict irrigation. They try to do dry farming, so no added water, just natural water that comes from the water uh, water table. And um, those are really important things because in these heavily populated agricultural areas, we're devastating our land by overusing it or uh, tapping into too much water. And so there are different entities in different regions. Here we have Lodi rules. And what Lodi rules is they have a whole management of even uh, different pesticides you can or can't use or uh, different types of things you can put into the soil. And all those have to do with being a better steward of the land, right? So my first vintage, because I didn't have the resources, I couldn't go out there and just say, hey, I want these grapes from this very conscious grape grower. But as I grow, that's what I want to do. Uh, wow. So I hope to make wines that are under the Lodi Rules banner, because I think it's a responsible thing to do. And as people you know, uh, enjoy and support Seisoles, I can grow into them. And that's specifically when we're talking about uh, responsible kind of grape farming. That's it. So see here that you guys got it for responsible farming, great farming. You need to buy some say so less wine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> where do you want, where do you hope to see say so less go in the next, you know, year, three years, five years and beyond? What would you like to see? I would love to see, and I was thinking about this yesterday. I would love to see say so less in restaurants and wine shops and available to when we're talking about, uh, Latinx people, and it's really for everybody, but when we're talking about bringing these new people to the table, uh, we exist in California, Arizona, Texas, uh, New Mexico, uh, even up all the way down the West Coast. So is there availability for me to be in certain areas? Maybe, but that's why I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm including shipping to all these areas. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have to be there, but if you like that wine, I can get it to you. I think if I look back, and I'm very proud of this brand, what happened was that I grew and I needed my, my, my prima's gonna come on board. We talked about it in January. Her name's uh, Michelle. She's gonna be my uh, my right hand. She's gonna be a co-owner. She's a very intelligent person. I think she's gonna help me from a business aspect. And I'm a teacher about wine and we're gonna do this together. And that means that her family is going to benefit from Saison. Now, what about if I teach uh, like uh, my older brother, teach him about wine and demystify it and make it not as crazy, but hey, 
why don't you go and tell my story in the region you live in and we'll sell wine there. And if I look back and I was able to have uh, a lot of families find some kind of financial independence, I really think uh, it's, it's going to be something I'm proud of. It's not necessarily like a beautiful kind of winemaking story where like, I'm so passionate about the land. I am, but I'm, I'm trying to create something that, that, that can feed some, some people and, and we can all benefit. We can all become homeowners and our kids can have what we did it when it came to security that meant that you were more likely to be successful. These are the things that I want to create when it comes to stay solace. And I can put my head down and with pride at night because I know I did it in a, a really true way yeah. and I'm doing it in an honest way. And so at the end of the day, if we have uh, new Latinos that are drinking wine and having a good time and my family and we all are, are, are benefiting from it, I think I'm going to be pretty proud of what we did. So before we get into the final two questions, is there anything else that you would like to add in regards to your story or the story of Cesoles before I ask you the final two questions? No, I just want people to take away that um, wine is not complicated. It shouldn't be intimidating. Um, it shouldn't be something where it's exclusionary or defines you as better than. Um, I encourage people to have fun with wine. Don't worry about what other people are going to think about it. If you like a sweet wine, if you like box wine, drink it. Uh, uh, I'll share a glass with you, you know? Um, but those are the main things when I talk about Seis Soles that I just want to come across. And uh, I hope to be a wine ambassador, a wine educator. So I'm continuing my education. An important thing for people to know is that I've been making wine and all that. But when it comes to like, let's say the Somme side or restaurant side or knowing really what happens in France, I don't have that experience. You know, we didn't go to a Chateau and we didn't learn what happened in France. I've read about it. But, um, I'm doing the, I'm still doing education. I'm still studying and taking tests and getting accreditations that have to do with expanding my knowledge outside of Lodi, outside of California. And mm -hmm. I hope to be a vehicle for people. So look out for that. Um, I hope if you know that you might not ever get to that specific area in France, because it's not common, um, maybe I can create that, that experience for you. And that's what I'll be trying to do in the future. Thank you, Chris. So last two questions. Oh man, you, you, you say that like, if it's going to be like, Really no, they're super easy. They're super easy. Well, one <laughs> might not be easy, but one it really is. What is something that can always make you smile, no matter how you're feeling? Uh, cheese. No. Uh, <laughs> um, Wine and cheese, man. Hello. Why are you thinking? Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't even think that. That's right. <laughs> uh, something that could always make me smile. I have family members. I guess I, I look to for that. You know, um, silly text. I have good friends that have really sense of humor. We, I, we might be crude. Um, we, we kind of have a no, no subject is off the table type of friendships with people. So nothing I want to put in writing, but uh, uh, we, we always make some fun jokes. Um, those kind of things uh, make me smile. Uh, communication and connection with people make me smile. Yeah, that, that's something I've always liked. Uh, if I'm away from people for a long time, I start to feel it. Uh, I, I feel that. Um, yeah. Okay, so last question, because we start with the wine and we end with the wine. Besides sure. Seis Soles, because that would be way too easy, what is your favorite type and brand of wine? Type and brand, okay. Um, right now, I'm into uh, very uh, easy drinking wines. I Like, even when it comes to beer, like, I, I like sours. I like some, some of the I'm, – I'm not as hop-driven right now. Yeah, if I'm talking about wine, like, there's some beautiful wines out here in Lodi. Let me give you one specifically. It's a winery called Thinker Brick Winery, and they have a really – kind of a, a bright acidity type of driven rosé. They have beautiful white wines. They even have an Albarino. Uh, those things are available there. So Lodi is really known for having big red Zinfandel. And that's what they assume. But people come here and they're like, wait, you guys are making beautiful 
uh, wines and really uh, approachable wines, food friendly. You're making white wines in Lodi? No way. And we're one of the biggest like Albarino producers in the, in the United States, in Lodi. So uh, that's a brand I like called Clinker Brick, K-L-I-N-K-E-R. It's a family-owned winery. Uh, they've been in this uh, area for generations, stewards of their own land, and they're making beautiful wine. And I specifically like, uh, they have a Grenache Blanc and Albarino and a Rosetta. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. I am super excited. And if people like Chris has freaking gone above and beyond for people who are listening to the wine and chisme or follow us on social media, because he is, he's crazy. I was like, Hey, can we get something for our listeners? And he's like, I'll give you 30% off. Like, what? <laughs> I oversold it. I should have gotten 15. No. I know. <laughs> but you already said it. You already said it. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm totally with it. I want people to try it and let's make it accessible, you know? So if you go to the number six, soles, S-O-L-E-S dot com, and under when you check out, put in code wine and chisme, all word, all spelled out, um, you'll get 30% off your order. So Chris, thank you so much for that. Thank you for sending me these beautiful wines and for sharing your story. I think it's really important that we hear the stories of people who are learning and, and new vintners like yourself and, and people who and work the land. Because I've, I've seen people who work the land. They've ended up being able to buy the land and now have their own um, wineries as well. And, and all of those stories, especially from our black and brown winemakers is super important. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me and uh, giving me a platform. Um, it's, it's amazing to share that and uh, you're doing great work and I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Until next time, mi gente. listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Made podcast. Remember, if you would like to order say Soles wine, go to the number six, soles, S-O-L-E-S dot com and use Wine and Cheese Made, all spelled out for 30% off your total order. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? Then please reach out to me via my social media channels. You can reach me at the Wine and Cheese Made podcast dot com. Instagram at The Wine and Cheesemint and Facebook and LinkedIn at The Wine and Cheesemint Podcast because I really do want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemint, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are always appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos.